live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. J-Pal, joy. U.S. stocks eyeing fresh records as the Fed chair supports rate cut hopes. Interception, the U.K. Navy defends an oil tanker from Iranian harassment in the Strait of Hormuz and taxing tech. France passes a law tackling 30 big tech companies. The U.S. says it will investigate. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again, where we're just getting ready for part two of Jay Powell on the Hill, of course. So I have to argue, I think his work is done here. He was certainly speaking the language of love to investors yesterday, a.k.a. highlight all the risks. Yep, that is the world we're living in. The market, though, pretty convinced that we're going to get that rate cut at the end of July. U.S. stocks could be on track to hit fresh record highs today. We did see the S&P 500 breaking through the 3,000 level, actually, for the first time ever yesterday. The question is, can we stay above that level at the close today? The Nasdaq managed a fresh record high yesterday, in fact. What about the U.S. dollar, though? Take a look at what we're seeing there. It came under a bit of pressure yesterday and today, of course. Encouraging news for one person, President Trump. He's blasted other countries, of course, for keeping their currencies artificially low relative to the dollar in order to boost trade. You've got to remember, though, it's the longer-term trend here for both interest rates and the economic outlook that's going to determine the dollar's ultimate direction Is this going to be a one-off or a two-off rate cut, or are we at the start of a more broad rate-cutting cycle? He did rattle off, as I mentioned, a long list of risks here to the record expansion, including trade and slowing global growth. He clearly wants to nip any potential downturn here in the bud if he can, but of course there are risks to doing that, including what I just mentioned, record highs in the stock market and investors, of course, that simply aren't just going to be happy with one rate cut here. Even the Fed minutes showed that not everyone agrees with cutting rates at this stage, some even worrying still about stimulating asset price bubbles. What's arguably, though, giving the Fed room to cut here has been persistently low inflation. We did have some news on that front this morning, too. U.S. underlying consumer prices increasing at the most in nearly one and a half years, even if it was just a little number. Let's get to the drivers on that, because Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, talk me through this number, because it's not a slam dunk here for cutting rates, but hey, it's not going to deter the Fed, I don't think. Just one number here. Yeah, uh, Jay Powell has consistently said one uh, data point does not a trend make. But I think this further complicates the picture. And it's leading people this morning to once again question the dovish tone that we heard from him last night. He's dealing with a very complicated tightrope. We also got initial jobless claims this morning that were at a three-month low. Uh, so two good data points. Uh, so really, he, he's trying to, to figure out this economy, which is, he, as he put it, growing reasonably well. But there are serious downside risks. But I will say his tone did surprise some yesterday. We were expecting, particularly off the back of uh, last week's strong jobs report, that he might uh, you know, start to prepare the market against a guaranteed rate cut in July. He definitely didn't do that. And I thought it was particularly interesting what he had to say about the jobs market. Take a listen. 3.7% is a low unemployment rate, but uh, to call something hot, you need to see some heat. And while we hear lots of reports of labor, of, of companies having a hard time finding qualified labor. Nonetheless, we don't see wages really responding. 
the wages, of course, playing into that low inflation story. It was interesting. He had a, he had a really interesting exchange with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about the Phillips curve, that traditional link between inflation and unemployment. He said they have now learned that the economy can stay, sustain much higher levels of unemployment than they thought without inflation running away with itself. So that is the central conundrum here that the Fed is dealing with. Yeah, one of the persistent battles here, where is wage growth ultimately? One of the other interesting things I'd point out from the, uh, the inflation numbers here too is goods. This was good price inflation that was kicking in, aka our tariffs. Higher prices here in the United States are going to also be a further spanner here. But, you know, one of the interesting questions that he got for me, Claire, yesterday was, have you learned anything from the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, their persistent battle here with low inflation? And they've chucked everything and the kitchen sink at it to try and get prices higher, and they haven't managed it. And his response was, yeah, you don't want to leave inflation too low for too long. I'd argue that perhaps the right answer here should have been, uh, do we need to do something else other than just negative rates and buying assets? What do you think? Well, I mean, there's a difference in the in the situation for the Fed and, and the ECB and the Bank of Japan. The Fed is much further ahead uh, when it comes to removing post-crisis era measures. They've raised rates nine times since the end of 2015. So they do have a little space if they do want to do this insurance cut, as many are, are calling it, at the end of this month. But as you say, uh, there's a risk here that, that the market could expect more, that, that they could have to keep going after that. Uh, and, the, and, you know, there are risks when it comes to, to what they do next. If the economy does start to slow, if they start to ease rates? Will they have enough ammunition uh, to fight against a recession? I think that's another thing uh, that the market is worried about, economists are worried about. And that's why we see the divisions this morning on Wall Street and, in fact, in the Fed board about what to do next. It's an extremely complicated situation. Oh, but I couldn't agree more with you, Claire. The Fed has got more cushion here because they did manage to raise rates. It's such a great point. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. All right. Let's move on to our next driver, further tensions between Iran and the West. Tehran has denied trying to force a British oil tanker off course on Wednesday. The UK, though, claims the armed Iranian boats tried to impede a BP vessel. Sam Kiley joins us now from Abu Dhabi. Sam, fascinating to see what's going on here. My understanding is that UK frigate physically positioned itself between that BP oil tanker and three Iranian warships. Talk us through what we know here. Well, you're absolutely absolutely right there, Julia. They did indeed do that on HMS Montrose. It was unofficially escorting or shadowing. Uh, the MOD in London has been very coy about the terminology here because they didn't want to escalate the situation that was already very tense between the United Kingdom and Iran over the British seizure of the Grace One, that oil tanker that is still under British control, uh, but it was heading to Syria, allegedly in breach of uh, sanctions uh, against Syria, Iranian oil, I should say. So the Iranians had threatened retribution, and that's exactly what appears to have happened. According to the MOD, they had to level their weapons at these three Iranian fast gunboats. Uh, those weapons include machine guns and a 30-millimeter automated cannon, a pretty scary looking bit of kit and the Iranians backed off and the British heritage the BP uh, uh, ship carried on on its way but what's very interesting also about this ship is called the British heritage it's owned by BP the company formerly known as British Petroleum uh, and of course it was flying a British flag at a time when Britain was being threatened with retaliation by Iran and it decided at, at that sharp U-turn you can see there up close to the border with Kuwait not to take on 140,000 barrels of oil 
uh, from Basra for, of, of Iraqi oil and ship it out, but actually turn round empty, take on ballast uh, and run first for a Saudi port. And then that dotted line, the two dotted lines there, show where it actually turned off its transponder as it, uh, in the first case, rendezvoused with the Montrose and then was being escorted out through that very tight shipping lane in the Straits of Hormuz. So indicating that the ship itself was aware that it could uh, attract the unwanted attention of the Iranians. And that, according to the Ministry of Defence, exactly what happened, Julia. Yeah, everybody being very cautious with terminology here, as you said, because no one wants to see a further escalation here. But, Sam, the question is, how do we de-escalate? Because this comes amid a succession of sort of tit-for-tat events between Iran and the West. Well, they do, but they're also entirely separate things. At least that's certainly the way that the British would like to portray them. They are not on board at all with Donald Trump's administration's desire uh, to tear up the nuclear deal that was uh, signed in 2015, or not signed, but agreed uh, with the Iranians to suspend their nuclear program return for lifting sanctions. Indeed, the Trump administration imposed sanctions that Britain and others have actually been trying to find ways for the Iranians to circumvent. This, though, adds to the problems at exactly the time when the Iranians in many ways could have been exploiting differences between the United Kingdom and the United States, of course, not only over policy towards Iran in the medium and long term, but also uh, somewhat perhaps ironically at a time when uh, diplomatic relations between London and Washington are at a bit of a low. Absolutely. And Europe had 60 days to act and they failed. Something needs to give. Sam Kiley, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, let's move on now to France and French lawmakers approving a 3% tax on big tech. That despite the White House warning that they will now enact a probe into whether this unfairly targets U.S. firms. Hadas Gold joins us now. Hadas, let's talk about what France is doing here, because this is unilateral action to tackle big tech. The British are also looking at their own options here. Why are they doing this and how high is the risk that perhaps we see the U.S. retaliate? Is this unfairly tackling U.S. firms in particular, as the U.S. argues? Well, Julia, this is part of the hunger we're seeing from a lot of countries who want to somehow tax a lot of these major digital companies that some people, some critics, feel these companies are shirking their tax duties by setting up shop in lower tax countries uh, that we've seen some of them put their headquarters, for example, in Ireland or in Luxembourg. So what the French just passed, the French Senate passed this morning, is a 3% tax on global revenues of certain companies that reach a certain threshold. They either make $145 million average, uh, sorry, $145 million per year globally or a lower amount just within France. But a lot of the companies that would be affected by that are American companies. Think Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And that's why uh, the trade representatives said that they're going to launch what's called a Section 301 probe into where this fairly targets American companies. And what that Section 301 allows them to do is potentially issue retaliatory tariffs against French goods as a result of this French law. I want to read you what the USTR said in a statement. They said, the United States is very concerned that the digital services tax unfairly targets American companies. Uh, the president has directed that we investigate the effects of this legislation and determine whether it is discriminatory or unreasonable and burdens or restricts United States commerce. Now, what the Americans actually want the French to do is to wait for the OECD to finish up its study of what could be a complete overhaul of the global tax, uh, what, how the 
global tax system works that would significantly change how companies like Amazon and Google and actually companies worldwide pay their taxes. But that is years away from being implemented, likely. And so some countries, like France and like you mentioned, the United Kingdom, are just moving forward on their own. Some see this as part of a push to try to pressure the international communities to get going. And some see it as just the countries trying to take advantage of trying to get some of the revenues that they believe they are owed by these companies. Now, the French have been pushing back on this, and they say that there is no need to resort to threats from the United States, and there's other ways that they can negotiate this and talk about this. Keep in mind, Julie, also, this is not actually signed into law yet. Emmanuel Macron will need to do that, but it has passed both houses of the French parliament. Yeah, Davis, it doesn't surprise me that Europe couldn't agree to do something collectively here. The likes of the, uh, the Irish and the Dutch are looking at their own revenues and going, no way, we'll leave it to the OECD, even if it takes uh, years and years and years. We'll see. Haddis Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. The Vatican opened two graves a short time ago, hoping to solve the mystery of a teenage girl who vanished without a trace 36 years ago. But no remains were found inside the exhumed graves. Emanuela Rolandi was just 15 years old when she disappeared after a music lesson in the area back in 1983. U.S. federal agents will go ahead with massive immigration raids that were put on hold last month. The New York Times says the raids will begin this Sunday and target thousands of people with deportation orders. Officials said the raids were originally set for late June, but President Donald Trump delayed them. Parts of the U.S. Gulf of Coast are feeling the effects of a major tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico. This is a staircase at a hotel in Louisiana, now a raging waterfall. The storm system is expected to strengthen in the coming hours. Hurricane watches remain posted along the coast. Japan has successfully landed an unmanned spacecraft on a distant asteroid for the second time. The Hayabusa 2 will collect samples from beneath the asteroid's surface as part of an ongoing mission to explore the origins of the solar system. Wow, that's pretty incredible. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But still to come, how Japan and South Korea's trade rift could have memory chips stuck in the middle. And in Washington, Facebook and Twitter aren't getting a friend request from President Trump at today's so-called social media summit. All the details after this. Stay with CNN. to first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and the trial of the former France telecom execs, now known as Orange, of course, the company is in its final hours. Six men accused of workplace bullying, which led to 35 suicides at France Telecom in 2008 and 2009. Melissa Bell joins us from Paris on this story. Melissa horrifying case. I mean, it was a fight for survival for the company at the time. Tens of thousands of people were being made redundant, but, but the alleged conditions that they were put under as a result of this are pretty appalling. Talk us through what we're expecting to see today. Well, this is a crucial day, as you say, the last one, Julia, in uh, this very closely followed trial and, of course, a key moment since Didier Lombard, the man who was CEO at that crucial time that you refer to, just after France Telecom went from being a state-owned monopoly through its transformation into a privately owned 
Orange, 22,000 jobs needed to be shared as part of a restructuring plan. The man in charge at the time, Didier Lombard, will take to the stand today and speak for himself for the first time. And many of those in the courtroom, Julia, will be some of the plaintiffs, 39 people in all that were included in this action, including 19 who'd committed uh, suicide. Some of the survivors that workplace bullying will be in court to hear what uh, he has to say for himself, how Didier Lombard uh, will justify what went on. They say that he was responsible for overseeing a restructuring of the company that led to uh, harassment of the staff, a deliberate campaign of harassment to try and get rid of them. And I think it's really important when you're looking at this story, Julia, to understand that in France, and this was the case of many of those 22,000 employees of France Telecom at the time, the status of the civil servant is an extremely important one that many of them would have been reluctant to leave which is why they stayed and in the end found themselves, they say, destroyed by the campaign of bullying that went on. Julia. Absolutely, Melissa. I don't want to excuse any alleged behaviour by executives as a result of what was going on, but it is the first case of its kind. Will it set some kind of precedent? Because we often talk about the, the relative restrictions of the labour market and the challenge that businesses have in trying to, to reshape and, and, and adjust here. Does it answer any questions perhaps about that or shed any light on that? Or do we have to take this in isolation about a company at that time and what happened there by these people potentially? No, I think you're absolutely right, Julia. It really speaks to one of the quirks of the French labour market as dominated as it is by that status of civil servant. And that is one of the things that has made it relatively inflexible over the last few decades. Many of the victims that we spoke to yesterday at the courtroom, Julia, were saying that they were really looking to see the harshest verdict handed down because they believe that if that were so, if a CAC 40 company could be held responsible for moral bullying, for moral harassment, with a verdict of some jail time and fines going to the top executives, then they say it is something that could never happen again. Julia. Melissa Bell, thank you so much, and we await that verdict later today. All right, let me give you a look at U.S. stock futures at this moment. We could see fresh records at the open. Fed Chair Jay Powell, of course, for day two testifying in front of Congress. He seemed to signal yesterday that they are on course to cut rates at the back end of July. We've also had the June inflation numbers coming in slightly hotter than expected. Overall inflation up 0.1% on the month. Core consumer prices increasing at the most in nearly one and a half years. Let's talk through our expectations here with Jim Keenan, Chief Investment Officer and Global Co-Head of Credit at BlackRock. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. Your thoughts on what we got from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve yesterday. Are you pretty convinced we do see the anticipated rate cut in July? Yeah, I definitely think you'll see a rate cut. But I mean, more than anything, I think you see um, through through the communication of the Fed that we do have a dovish Fed right now. Um, you know, central banks around the world are still worried about uh, the expectations of, of forward growth. And, and clearly, we're still dealing with an, a global economy that is slowing post some of the con- the tightening of financial conditions last year, and more so than anything, the Fed and other central banks are being aggressive and they're being proactive uh, to try to defend against the weaker growth of the picture. Do you think as a result, and you mentioned it, it's not just about the Federal Reserve easing here, there's plenty of other central banks that are either moving in this direction or making noises of it, that actually we can avoid a more material slowdown here, avoid recession? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, if you just take a step back, I think the reality is, is we are in a low growth environment. Uh, and, you know, the aggregate debt and the overall uh, system globally is still going to put downward pressure on that. Uh, you're still going to see cyclicality in the market. Uh, and we saw that over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, that being said, uh, I think what you see from the central banks around the world is in that low growth environment is still uh, very worried about deflationary risk. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the world's in a much better place with regards to uh, w where we were over the last 10 years. That being said, uh, we still are just low growth environment, low inflation environment. And any time you see growth start to tick down, you see very active um, accommodative policy from central banks. And, and I think that is pos positive uh, to try to stabilize growth at lower levels. I'm going to ask you a crystal ball here. Do you think as a result of what you just said and the fact that we are in a lower inflationary environment here that you can tinker around the edges? Perhaps the Fed cuts once, perhaps it cuts again. Is that what we're looking at here or do you think we're going into a, a sort of rate cutting cycle here from the Federal Reserve? Because that matters both for risk assets, but it also matters for what we see in terms of the US dollar here too. Yeah, but I think it's you have a Fed that is going to be data dependent. So not only is it just about the rate cuts, but it's about the the language that they're using uh, around the expectations of how they will act in certain environments. And I think if the data is very strong, uh, on balance, that still will be good for risk assets. They may reduce the need to um, cut, but the markets and the expectations um, for the economy and corporates to understand that there is a stabilization. Um, or stimulus that will come in if the market gets worse, I think is, a, is generally going to be a positive. At the same time, when you look at it, I still think there are a lot of opportunities to invest right now. And if you think about a low growth environment, you have stability at that low growth, you have more stability on a low rate environment. And I still think the credit markets provide a pretty good opportunity. We tend to like the front end of the market right now, uh, where you can make 4 to 5% in an environment that has some uncertainties to it, but you definitely still have a, uh, a dovish Fed. Explain what you mean to our viewers by credit in this environment, because I think many of them will be looking at a situation and going, look, if you have a traditional portfolio where you have 60% in equities and 40% and in bonds, you look at, particularly for U.S., equities here, record highs, you look at bonds and you say, actually, those prices are pretty high and, and rates are pretty low. How much higher can those bond prices go? Um, there's a very strong argument here to be looking to diversify into things like credit. Where, where are you looking? Be specific. Yeah, well, I think a 60-40 portfolio, as you mentioned, is going to give you a risk return profile that looks more like the credit markets. Um, right. You know, when you look at the credit markets, a low growth, uh, low inflation environment that you are seeing positive earnings growth, uh, even where spreads are today or meaning the, the aggregate risk premium you're getting to go into the corporate credit market, uh, you know, they're, they're full on valuation, but they still provide a good income stream uh, in what I would think is a lower risk environment to uh, a recession. When we look at it, we still like the front end of the market because there are a lot of different risk factors beyond just the trade tensions or geopolitical risk. When you look at that, um, in order to make four or five percent type returns and get diversification relative to the equity market or rates, there's a variety of different things. The, the bank loan market, uh, front end high yield spreads, uh, or even private credit and some of the things you can get in, in the high single digits uh, range. And I think 
know, that's an environment today when you want to probably be a little bit more conservative with your portfolio uh, as you're adjusting to lower growth, that you can make a good return and diversify away from the potential volatility that you'll get in the equity market. You are right. Jim, I don't think you're going to get greater total return, gonna... but get carried. <laughs> Jim, fantastic to have you on. I know you like China, India and Indonesia too. We'll get to you uh, again. We'll get you back to talk about that. Thank you for joining us. Jim Keenan there Thanks, at BlackRock. Julia. The Market Open is next. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell for the fourth session this week. And as anticipated, we do have a higher open for U.S. majors this morning. We're waiting Jay Powell's second day of testimony. But as I said earlier on the show, I'm not sure how necessary it is, given the confirmation that the market took from what he said yesterday and the risks out there and the likelihood that we see a rate cut at the back end of July from the Fed chair, of course, and the Federal Reserve. We'll see if you do as address the inflation outlook, though, amid the data that we got earlier today. Slightly hotter than expected for last month in terms of price numbers here. We've got the Nasdaq also hitting a fresh record high and the S&P 500 right now in record territory. Keep an eye on health stocks today, too, among the biggest gainers after an about-face by the Trump administration. It says it will not seek to eliminate rebates from government drug plans in its effort to lower drug prices. That is a win for the drug industry, of course. This White House and the Democrats, of course, pushing to try and lower drug prices here in the United States. Well, that's one step that is not, certainly not going to help. All right. Let's move on and talk about Japan and South Korea and a trade dispute that's brewing between the two nations that ultimately could threaten the global supply of memory chips. Anna Stewart has been looking at this story. Fascinating story, Anna, and deeply complicated. So I'm going to let you get us through the details here, but it ties back <laughs> to, to World War II reparations. So um, good luck with this one. Explain what's going on. <laughs> Like this is something of a hospital pass. Yes, Julia, bear with me. Let me get you to it. So this has its roots uh, in Japan's colonization of South Korea between 1910 and 1945. And the issues that came out of that, I can tell you, are always in the media spotlight in the region. From my reporting in Tokyo, it's never far out of the news. There was the issue over the Japanese military forcing South Korean women into sex slavery, called comfort women uh, in the region. And also the issue of Japanese companies forcing South Koreans to work in their factories. Now, last year, a South South Korean court ordered several Japanese companies to make uh, compensation of hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to former forced laborers in South Korea. Companies like Nippon Steel, Sumitomo Metal, Mitsubishi and several others could be uh, in the pipeline. There are lots of other pending cases that involve different Japanese companies. Now, Japan says that no compensation is owed because all of that was settled in the 60s when the two countries normalized relations. Of course, South Korea disagrees with that. Uh, and as a result, they did see some Japanese
Japanese corporate assets in the country last year. Now, fast forward to this last week, and what we had was Japan announcing stricter export controls to South Korea on three key materials, which I won't even try to pronounce, but they are key ingredients used in semiconductor memory chips and smartphones. So something that is heavily relied on by the likes of uh, Samsung, LG, SK Hynix. Uh, they actually source over 90% of two of those um, materials from Japan, over 40% for the other. And if you consider that these... Um, South Korean firms actually contribute well over two-thirds uh, of all these memory chips uh, to around the world, then the global ripple effect, of course, of any export controls could potentially be very big. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? I think uh, other countries are learning, perhaps, from President Trump that trade tariffs can be a, a pretty potent tool if you want to bring negotiations or negotiators to the table about anything, quite frankly. But where does the World Trade Organization fit in here when, when a country is threatening trade tariffs as a result of something like this? Yeah, and I think the international community has to look at Japan and worry about its free market, get concerned about the idea of protectionism. South Korea has raised a complaint with the WTO saying that this is political retaliation, saying that this is illegal. Japan says not. Japan says it is simply reviewing export controls in the light of its own security concerns. And if that were the case, if it's security concerned only, then that would be fine under WTO rules. Now, it could take a very long time, of course, for the WTO to come up with any kind of conclusion or resolution. And in the meantime, we could see further escalation. Already in South Korea, we're seeing hashtag boycott Japan trending on social media. More than 36,000 South Koreans have also signed a petition uh, calling on the government to uh, take retaliatory action against Tokyo. And also then in Japan, we've seen threats that they could drop South Korea from their so-called whitelist of countries, uh, which have minimum trade restrictions. So we really could see more of an escalation here if they can't reach an agreement. Yeah, and the problem is the World Trade Organization is basically useless in this situation, as uh, we keep seeing, it seems. Anna Stewart. Your words, thank not you mine, so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll stand by them. Anna Stewart, <laughs> thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed with the uh, global movers today to Delta moving higher in the session. It posted record Q2 earnings results, boosted by strong demand amid the summer travel season. It also raised its 2019 profit forecast key. It is the only major U.S. airline that's not been hit by the Boeing 737 MAX crisis. We've also got to Q3 off to a great start. It had the most sales in a single day ever on Sunday, apparently. Wow! Up some 20% in the session. All right, Bed Bath & Beyond also in focus. Their quarterly earnings beat expectations, but their same-store sales fell more than 6%. That was significantly worse than expected. They were also a bit cautious about the full-year outlook as well. They said profits and sales will be at the lower end of guidance. Snap, also in focus. Bank of America raising its price target for the stock from $12 to $17. It kept its neutral rating, but it said the recent spike in the app's downloads will drive better revenues for the Q2 results. The shares are up a whopping 177% year-to-date. Admittedly, from a low base, it's still significantly below its $24 IPO price. And a correction, Delta up only 1%. That makes a bit more sense. I apologise for that, getting overexcited. All right, I'm back in my box. Coming up. 
We'll be talking about China after the US-China trade talks are in focus again. I'll speak to one of Wall Street's most prominent perma bears on China. He says the US should just walk away from the talks. My interview with Carl Bass next. first move. Carl Bass, the founder of hedge fund Haming Capital Management, is one of Wall Street's most powerful and persistent critics of China. He recently urged the United States to walk away from trade talks and begin playing, quote, hardball with an economically challenged Beijing because he believes Washington can bargain for better terms later. I began my interview with Carl with a look at the recent protests in Hong Kong. He calls that a key battleground in the U.S.-China relationship. Listen in. This is the the worst nightmare of China and Xi Jinping's regime is to show that a protest can actually uh, push back on the leadership of uh, of a dictatorial regime. And if you notice, what's happened is it's empowered Taiwan, which is China's uh, worst nightmare. Uh, These these protests have really empowered uh, the Taiwanese to to protest as well. And I think what you're going to see, so I'll make a, a very controversial prediction, but uh, given Carrie Lam's failure here uh, to, to get this through, and by the way, she has a full majority of pro-Beijingers in the, in the LEGCO, i.e. she could get this bill through if she just pushed it uh, through. Um, I think she will end up, she'll, she'll end up resigning and she will replace her with a hardliner and then they'll just ram this through. So I think when you look at fixed asset investment, you look at business going forward in Hong Kong, you would not start a new business there. You would start it in Singapore, you'd start it in Sydney, you'd start it somewhere in the region other than the place where you know you're going to be governed by the Orwellian iron fist of China. So I think Hong Kong is finished, uh, whether from a business perspective, it's just when it happens. I mean, the counter to that would be the risk is if they force this extradition bill through, they could lose preferred nation status, and that would have huge implications for the financial flows. I mean, it's a conduit for financial flows in and out of China, too. Do you think even China's willing to risk that? Yeah, I think, I think China made a, a dramatic miscalculation with this extradition bill. They thought they would just get it through, and it was because of this murder in Taiwan and that they don't have an extradition treaty, and China thought, well, we'll just push this through. If it's overt and it's a jam through, they will probably, the U.S. will be forced to to withdraw uh, our special trade uh, status with them. As Marco Rubio and, and uh, Schumer said, they'd be happy uh, to, to, I think, jointly file a bill uh, in the Senate to revoke those privileges. And of course, that would even preempt the president. You know, I think the obvious counter to this, and forgive me for saying it, is one that if China wanted to extradite a person, they could do it without needing the law in place. And the second is, we know that you're bearish on, on Hong Kong, you're bearish on the uh, Hong Kong dollar. What's to say you're not just talking your book here and, and sort of trying to scare people? What's your response? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, look, it's, a, it's a great point. I think every, everybody has an incentive. And I think you, you, know, you putting me on, this is 100% true. What I do in my life is I, I spot anomalies and, um, and I try to understand all of the inner workings of what's happening and then uh, I, I act as a fiduciary. And so the difference, I got maybe one of, one of the retorts to your, to your comment is um, all of my money is where my mouth is and um, if I'm wrong, I'm going to pay for it. 
Bass believes the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China represents an important challenge for U.S. national security. And he says there should be no lessening of the restrictions on China tech giant Huawei in order to reach a broader trade deal. He calls the 5G technology sold by China's Huawei dangerous to U.S. interests and cites new research by an associate professor at Fulbright University Vietnam as a smoking gun connecting Huawei to the Chinese military. When you get to this 5G network, if you have Huawei switches or routers or even phones, um, they are the digital, they, they're a digital dirty bomb. And the U.S. and the Five Eyes and the, and the developed West should not allow Huawei equipment in their networks. It's actually really simple. If you read the Huawei indictment uh, for uh, the case with T-Mobile and, and Tappy the Robot out on the West Coast, and if you understand, uh, if you read Professor Balding's work from over the weekend, connecting the Huawei uh, leadership to, to, the, to the Chinese government and Chinese military, uh, this is how they operate. And we must realize that they are not our friend. They are our enemy. Talk to me about Professor Balding's work specifically, because you have been, again, talking about this on social media and connecting Huawei workers to Chinese government intelligence agencies. He's been doing a lot of research on, number one, A, who owns Huawei? Who, who are the shareholders? Who are the direct beneficiaries of the largesse of the world's largest uh, telecom company run by uh, a dictatorial regime? And the second thing that he's been focused on uh, is Huawei's employees and uh, the, the, the duality of their employees with the Chinese military and how Chinese military uh, embeds itself uh, in the Huawei network. And uh, Professor Balding found through doing research in China on Chinese data, he found a data series uh, of more than 400 million uh, CVs or, or resumes in China. And he's been able to use that work to connect directly uh, the Chinese military to Huawei. And what's important to understand about what he's done is immediately China's lobbyists, Huawei's lobbyists and China's lobbyists in the US it, through the think tanks and through other academics that they've corrupted with, with financial incentives, immediately went to discredit um, Professor Balding's work. And they never called Professor Balding to see his data series. So talk to me about the press coverage here then. If you're saying that actually the press are trying to understand what Professor Balding has been doing, how well is that working out? Because you also mentioned well, the, the lobbyist power. Yeah, as, like, there were a number of different press outlets here in the U.S., uh, including the Washington Post, that were spooled up uh, to release various pieces of, of his work and his white paper on, after studying uh, a large part of this data series. And uh, Huawei's lobbyists were effective in what we've heard. Huawei's lobbyists were effective in, in getting those stories either spiked or delayed. How high and how concerned are you about the risk that there is a carve-out for Huawei as a result of an upcoming trade deal between the United States and China, because we've had hints of that already coming out of the G20. How material is the risk to the United States if there is a carve-out for Huawei here? I don't think we'll see a carve-out, but if there is one in some manner or fashion and somehow they're taken off the BIS uh, entity list, uh, then, then what we've done is we, would, we will be compromising our country's national security in the future for some political trade deal going into an election next year, which I think would be the biggest mistake Trump could possibly make.
We did reach out to the Washington Post about Bass's claim there that it was pressured to drop or delay its story on Professor Balding. The Post told us, quote, we looked at Christopher Balding's material and consulted with four experts in this area and decided against the story. No Huawei representative or lobbyist influenced our decision. Carbass rose to prominence during the financial crisis when he bet against U.S. subprime mortgages. And behind his recent focus on China lies a real disappointment over China's current policy path. He says Beijing has squandered its chance to become a responsible player on the world stage. Listen We all believed that uh, we would see more economic liberaliz- liberalization. We all believed we'd see more corporate liberalization. Uh, and allowing China to ascend to the WTO in 2001. And what we've seen is, unfortunately, we've seen them go the other way, right? They've become more uh, controlling, more dictatorial, and, and develop more of a surveillance state. The government actually monitors all of the data all the time with no due process and no rule of law. And, and one, one perfect case in point is in China. So, you know, these co-location facilities and these termination points around the, the world, these things called points of presence, so when you put a when you put a uh, co-location facility on a node of fiber in the internet, um, we allow all the Chinese companies to have points of presence here in the U.S. I.e., bring their systems into the nodes of the internet here in the U.S. China doesn't allow the U.S. to have points of presence whatsoever in China. Why do we allow that to exist? Either we should both have our systems in each other's countries, or none of us should have uh, anything in each other's countries. They're just they're, they, have a, they have a duality that they play, where they play the victim at all times, in which their restrictions on the U.S. are much greater than any U.S. restrictions on China, but somehow China's always the victim here. And to be fair to the White House, that's exactly what President Trump's talking about, tackling those asymmetries. That was Carl Bass, the founder and chief investment officer at Heyman Capital Management. Great conversation. All right, President Trump is holding a so-called social media summit today. But you won't see any of the obvious names in social media. So who will be there? Well, we'll discuss after this. Welcome back to First Move. And let's take a look at today's boardroom brief. Shares in Benkisser are trading higher after it agreed to pay up to $1.4 billion to settle a long-running probe in the U.S in the United States. The British company's former pharmaceutical business, Indivia, was accused of illegally increasing prescriptions for its opioid addiction treatment. I've got my teeth back in now. The Norwegian airline CEO and co-founder Bjorn Koss is retiring. The former fighter pilot pioneered low-cost air travel and grew the airline to be the third largest budget carrier in Europe. No successor has been found yet, according to the company today. Lockheed Martin is reversing the decision to close a Pennsylvania plant following pressure from President Trump to keep it open. The plant had a contract to build the next generation of presidential helicopters. It's now unclear if it will make parts for them. President Trump is hosting a so-called social media summit today at the White House. However, America's two biggest social networks, Facebook and Twitter, aren't invited. Oliver Darcy joins us now on this story. Oliver, when I saw this headline, I was like, brilliant. Heading into the 2020 elections, bring together a war room to decide how we tackle interference here. And then I looked at the guest list and was like, hang on a second. So yeah, this does- what, what is the purpose of this summit? 
Well, this doesn't appear to be an actual social media summit in the traditional way I think you might think of it. Uh, like you said, Facebook and Twitter are not going. The people who are going happen to be uh, a lot of conservatives and some right-wing extremists, people who have pushed conspiracy theories on, online, people who have pushed lies and misinformation online. And these are the people that Trump has invited to the White House and who we can expect likely to complain that social media companies might be a little mean to them. And, uh, you know, they, they, they've... The right wing has been complaining for some time about so-called censorship. Uh, of course, the companies say that they are not biased one way or another, but when people break the rules, they enforce those rules. And so I think that's a lot of what we can expect today at this so-called social media summit. Um, not a serious discussion on technology companies and the issues that face them, but really just a right wing, right -wing grievance festival. Um, it, I think it is also important to note that this is perhaps the clearest example yet of Trump seeking to validate and legitimize some of the political allies he has that are on the fringes of American politics. Um, and he's doing this at the same time while he's trying to delegitimize uh, mainstream media sources like this network, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post. He's seeking to bring one up and then take the other one down. And I think that's not only uh, alarming, but it's also dangerous and something that we should point out. I mean, these are, in certain cases, known right-wing extremists, and they're being invited to the White House. And actually, in certain cases, some of them on, on social media, and I've seen it, were they thought it was a joke. They thought the invitation was a joke, and, and they sort of questioned it on, on social media. That's how radical what we're seeing here is. Yeah, it, it's, it's actually quite shocking. I mean, I, I know I've been, I've been covering... Uh, the White House and, and politics in, in the sphere for some time. But it's shocking that some of these people actually did receive invites. It's shocking that the president of the United States is going to effectively be rolling out the red carpet for people who push extremist theories online, people who push smears online against their political opponents. That is shocking. And the fact that the president of the United States is boosting these people, I mean, there, there are no words. Yeah. yeah. This is not a social media summit. Oliver Darcy, thank no. you very much for that. All right, thank records you. being made here for U.S. stocks. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing. We did get above that 27,000 in the Dow. There, as you can see, we're a bit below it. The S&P 500 just below 3,002. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.